thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. Last week, I had the privilege of speaking to Professor Rory Ryan's class in federal courts at the Baylor Law School just down the road in Waco, Texas, about the Texas abortion statute called SBA, now before the Supreme Court in two cases. The presentation was recorded, and I've divided that recording into two podcast episodes. This is the second. In the first, I covered some background about the SBA cases and the first of four major issues that they present, specifically a state's sovereign immunity as defined by the longstanding Supreme Court precedent of Ex parte Young. In this episode, the second part of the presentation, I turn to the other three issues, which are questions of standing, both to sue under the Texas law and to sue about it, whether the statute has avoided state action and with it federal civil rights law by delegating enforcement to private citizens, and finally, the limits on the inherent equitable power of a federal court to enjoin unconstitutional laws under the also longstanding Supreme Court precedent of in re debts. I hope that you enjoy these presentations and find them informative about the seemingly simple, but in fact, bafflingly complicated Texas abortion statute of SB 8. Let's do a little standing. Ah, I'm standing. You're sitting. Um, <laughs> law is such a funny thing. All right, so this is the basic rule. We take it from, uh, actually, that's the wrong site on that case, but forgetting the site, that's the general uh, boilerplate black letter for standing. Who can bring a lawsuit in the federal court? You have to have a personal stake. Your fish has to be different from all the other fishes. Something about you cannot just be a concerned citizen and bring a lawsuit in the federal courts, because otherwise we would never get anything done. There'd be millions of concerned citizens and we'd never be able to, uh, to, the courts just would freeze up and not be able to function. So that's the black letter definition. Let's take a look then at, well, before jumping into that, let's pause for a second. Uh, Remember there's the private case and there's the public case. The private case has a big problem with Ex parte Young and the 11th Amendment issue. Uh, and so resolving that is sort of the threshold problem out of the gate for the private case. The, federal, the United States case resolves that problem largely because the United States is not bound by the 11th Amendment. The reason the 11th Amendment is the way it is is a notion that states have sovereign immunity. Um, the United States has got more sovereignty than the states do. And so the 11th Amendment restriction doesn't apply to it. So Ex parte Young is not an issue for the United States. Standing, however, is a big issue in that litigation for the United States. It's a lot easier in whole women's health for the providers. The point, though, is not free from doubt. Uh, there is discussion of standing in the Fifth Circuit's opinion in the private case. I didn't get into the details of that here. Just to note that it's the private actors have a better standing argument in that case than the United States does in the United States lawsuit. But the point is uh, debatable, even as to the plaintiffs in that case. However, in the United States action, which remember is just United States versus Texas, Ex parte Young's back on the shelf, we're not talking about it. This is the issue statement in that case. Can the United States sue a whole bunch of people? Or may the United States sue them? Well, I'm just kind of, there's not a lot of good guidance in the cases on this. There's a million cases that have that standing framework. Uh, there's a ton of them from the election cycle that basically said interested parties that dress themselves up in political clothing are still not interested parties. Uh, but 
the United States essentially has made two arguments about standing. These are excerpts from Texas's brief, so they're biased. Uh, I'm not suggesting this is what the law is. I'm just trying to illustrate what the arguments are. They made two arguments about standing. One is there are a number of federal programs that are affected by SB 8. Uh, there are uh, programs that in some way or another encourage, enhance, develop, fund uh, the availability of abortions. And these are some examples of them. The, the people that are in federal custody, ORR is the type of immigration custody, the Job Corps, people live in Job Corps facilities and work is kind of a quasi-jail thing, uh, learning about getting jobs type of thing. Um, and there are problems with that. For one thing, it's a real question whether the statute applies to federal facilities and programs. Open question about that. But just going along with that for a second, the state response to that is, really? Really? Who? Who, is, who are all these people that are wanting to take advantage of their constitutional right that are in BOP? Because there aren't any. So theoretically, sure, the Bureau of Prisons or Immigration or the Job Corps or whoever has some custodial responsibility, but you're not really exercising it. There's not a long line of people here. If you weren't the United States, no one would give this the time of day. There's a related argument that's probably better for the U.S. Uh, about funding through Medicare-type programs and federal support for uh, certain uh, medical procedures, which includes abortion. That's not discussed in this particular section of the brief. That may be how the, they ultimately get standing if they go there. But suffice to say that just because you're the U.S. and you're, well, let, uh, ignoring the argument I'm about to put up, just like any other litigant, the U.S. has to show it's got an interest that's unique. And it tried mightily to point to a number of specific programs very serious question whether it did that. Uh, because while the programs in theory do, are affected by SBA as a practical matter, it's pretty shaky and it borders on speculation about the future, which is a no-go in standing law. The other argument, I see what I think of it from the um, graphic, but is this notion of parents patriae, which is a fancy Latin phrase for something. Um, some states have a belief that their state has what's called a parents patriae interest in the general welfare of the people. And so uh, the state is able to bring lawsuits to sort of uh, enforce consumer laws or, or, or protect consumers, even if there isn't a specific consumer statute, that kind of thing. Texas doesn't have that. We don't have a doctrine in this state. Our, our state can only act legislative uh, authorization for them to do something. Does the United States government have a parents patriae? The loose Latin translation is like a parentage type of thing. It's sort of a big brother general interest in things going okay. Um, probably not. Surprisingly, case law about that. A pretty good argument is no, you don't. There is no federal police power under the Constitution. The police power, you know, life is something reserved states under the Tenth Amendment, uh, it's probably wasn't the intent of the framers of the Constitution to give the U.S. government a general interest in the well-being of everybody, but they didn't say you don't have it either, and there's some cases that are kind of here and there. So that's the U.S.'s fallback position in that case is, okay, so maybe programs are a little shaky, maybe the whole funding thing is a little, little much, but I mean, we are in the United States, this is an important interest, and we would like to do something about it. That's an interesting argument, of course, trying to put a boundary around it is very difficult because once you say the U.S. just has a sort of general interest in how the laws are being enacted or how people are being treated 
Where do you draw that line? That's very hard, particularly without a lot of case law giving you instruction on that. So in some ways, the easiest argument for the U.S., look, we're the freaking United States. It's our Constitution. Get out of the way. But well, I don't know about that, particularly with the judiciary and the Fifth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court that's dominated by conservative thinking. Um, even more standing. So this, this are the standing problems in the litigation. Who can challenge the statute? The private actors, there's some arguments there. The United States solves ex parte young, but the United States is an actor like anybody else. They have to have an interest, and there are some serious questions there. Um, then we get to the statute. Let's forget all about the federal stuff for a second. Let's just think about, let's just assume that all the federal litigation goes away and we have one of these. And someone shows up, pays the filing fee to the unenjoined clerk, and they proceed. And someone says, who are you? My name is Joe. Where do you live, Joe? I live in Waco. What are you suing about? I'm suing about uh, somebody that drove Sarah to the abortion clinic in San Antonio. Okay. Do you know Sarah? No. Do you know the person that drove them to the abortion clinic? No. How'd you find out? I saw it on the internet. I read the, I looked at the Who Can You Sue Today website and they were listed on there by a group that seems to specialize in those things. How were you hurt by that, Joe? Were you, did you see them go there? No. Were you there when it was being performed? No. Did you pay for it? No. Did they, did the car hit you on the way to the clinic? No. Why are you here, Joe? What interest do you have that is different from the general public? Well, I really don't have one. But the statute says any person and isn't limited by that principle. And I'm a person and I don't work for the state. And that person, I have evidence uh, knowingly engaged in things that violates the statute. So I'd like to bring a lawsuit and collect my $10,000 bounty. And I can then go on and collect later on. Huh. That's a head scratcher. And the, the question, so we have... The question whether a legislature can just sort of abrogate the standard rule of standing and say, the courts are open to you, is something that I think the courts of Texas are going to be skeptical about, both as a matter of constitutional law, as a matter of state procedural law, uh, that, yeah, okay, that's a great legislature that you thought that, but uh, we're not going to let you do that. Because the same reason that's a general requirement in, in court is the same reason why it has to be sort of a baseline requirement about how the courts operate. You can't function if the legislature can just let anyone show up and bring a lawsuit. But the argument the other way is the legislature can do as it pleases in defining uh, the causes of action, and it chose to define this one broadly. So there's a sta there's the standing issues on the pending litigation are one thing. When and if, if and when this is returned to the state courts and certain constitutional issues get taken up there, standing and the contours of it are going to be a huge deal in the state courts. Why are you here and why are you talking about stuff that you weren't involved in? Um, so that's standing. I don't think I can happy to talk, answer questions about standing, but I think it's sort of largely self-explanatory um, and I'm still standing. After that, so let me go through state action, then we can kind of catch up and see where, where, where we're at. And this came up in discussion earlier, closely related to Ex parte Young. Young is about, though, assuming you have a state that has acted, Texas, Minnesota, in that case, how can you bring them into court as a private act, as a private plaintiff? Here, there's a question of did the state act at all? And this is not a theoretical question. The 14th Amendment is where this comes from, and it is then picked up by other laws. But it's, a, it's limited to a state, and for a very good reason. Right? The, First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, which is largely incorporated by the 14th Amendment, is a check on government. The first words of the First Amendment are, Congress shall not. 
and that's the only way it can be. You can't have a, a Bill of Rights that checks private citizens because that's not a Bill of Rights anymore. The Bill of Rights restrains the government that's created by the Constitution. The 14th Amendment uh, continues that. And it's limited to things that states do. So you have to have state action for this amendment to be implicated and to have another civil rights claim uh, come, to, come to the courts. And uh, it's an important limitation on what courts and the federal government, for that matter, can do as between public and private affairs. Um, then we have the statute. Devilishly clever, again, one little sentence. But remember the sentence before? It's you have to have state action. The law says the only person in the world, aside of someone who's incompetent or something and doesn't qualify as a person, that cannot act under this statute is the state. Ha ha, gotta be state action, not the state. Clean, simple, clear as, and, and persuasive to the Fifth Circuit, albeit in ex parte young, not talking about state action, but you gotta be the state, it's not the state. And so that's, is that argument correct? Uh, we'll talk about the pros and the cons of it here, but is it simple and elegant? Heck yeah. When you gotta have state action, ha ha, no state action. I said it in one sentence. Arguments that you can say in one sentence are usually fairly strong. So ingenious bit of drafting on a fundamental threshold question. We can't even open our mouths about the Constitution unless the state did something. And if there's no state action, we're done. It doesn't matter about Ex parte Young, it doesn't matter about standing, it doesn't matter about anything else. The state didn't act, the Constitution isn't implicated. So I got my clever graphic. X means not state action. In a minute, state action. Pretty slick, huh? Got X's. Clip art is great. So. Um, this is a case, what did it come out of? This is a Batson case from way back when. But it, in the course of resolving uh, this, the Batson issue, it made the comment, consistent with what you saw earlier about Ex parte Young, that the decision to file a lawsuit, the decision to pursue discovery in a lawsuit, the decision of where to file the lawsuit, that sort of thing, that's not state action. That's private stuff. Private actors make those decisions. The state is there in the background. It's there to be taken advantage of, but it's like the electric company or something. It's just a tool. It's something that private actors make decisions about. And historically, in this section, uh, the, the opinion, it cites cases that support that principle, but that's not state action. It ultimately goes on, by the way, to find that a, a race-based peremptory strike is, in fact, state action. So it shows this can get kind of slippery. But the concept that a private litigant and their, their ability to make their own decisions is sort of similar to a state judge's independent ability to make decisions for purposes of ex parte young, eh, it's sort of a reinforcing idea. And related to that is, uh, this argument gets is treated very shortly in the briefing in the Supreme Court, but it's an important principle. An argument made against the statute is, well, no, wait a minute, you've deputized the entire state. We've all heard vigilante and all that in the media coverage of this. Yeah. It says any person, that's cute that you said no state in there, but nobody would have this claim if you hadn't passed the statute. There's no common law tort for I heard somebody talked about an abortion down the street. That's not, a, that's not a cognizable claim. This exists because Texas made a deliberate choice for it to exist. And you admittedly created a very big class of little deputy sheriffs on this, but you did it. This is something you did, and you put this ball in motion. You have made them, in some sense, agents of the state. Uh, the answer to that is, and this is in the, the state's briefing on the, in the U.S. case, is, well, not really. Agency means control. This is section 1.01 of the restatement. It doesn't just mean I let you go do it. 
or I gave you general instruction. I have to be guiding you in how you do it. I can guide anybody, says Texas. I passed a law. I set out certain remedies that you're able to take advantage of. I put in some procedures about where you can do. Who wants to That's your business, not mine. And in fact, Texas now, I say nobody used it. People have chosen not to bring those lawsuits. We didn't have anything to do with that. We had no idea who would show up. And frankly, we're surprised that nobody took this law that we passed. So where's that principle? Going the other direction, you have, this is the district judge opinion. So remember, there's the private case. There was a judge case. The circuit jumped in and went up to the Supreme Court. The, the U.S. case did go to preliminary injunction. Uh, judge Pittman in Austin granted the preliminary injunction, uh, and then it uh, went through the Fifth Circuit up to the Supreme Court. And the Fifth Circuit writing a very, very short opinion because it knew the case was just passing through. They didn't take the time to really write anything. Um, they wrote a short, like, two-page thing that not very good, frankly. It talks about ex parte young, wrong plaintiff, guys. Uh, they clearly just kind of dashed something out and hoped that it would go away, which it did. But the argument that Judge Pittman makes on this point is the point I was just making about putting the ball in motion. The delegation is state action. There, there was nobody, there could, no action was possible until you went and passed this goofy law and let these people have this cause of action. You flipped the first domino, and yeah, okay, it was up to people to bring the lawsuits, but you didn't pass the statute thinking people were just going to ignore it. You passed it so people would have the ability to bring lawsuits, and that is a sufficient action by the state to trigger uh, constitutional protections. And then Shelley versus Kramer that we were just talking about, the restrictive covenant case, um, if I go to the clerk and I try to file a restrictive covenant, uh, they may file it, but it's not enforceable. If anything is done in the clerk's office to try to actually do something with that, that is state action. Um, and as we actually have one at our house, it was split off from the original lot back in the 30s. It is a devil to get rid of those things. It would cost $100,000 easily to go around the neighborhood and get rid of it. Suffice to say, it's not enforceable. Shelley versus Kramer, why am I worried about it? I'm not. But uh, that's, that's this case is... It, practically important because there's just no other way to get at this problem than going at the clerks. You can't expect people to go around rooting around all these old title documents. So you've got the clerk there. You have the, you have, so you have kind of a combination. Remember the issue presented here, wherever it was, was can the United States sue all these people? Somewhere in there is somebody you can enjoin, is their thinking. And if it's the the state itself, who's the named uh, entity, well, the state itself is who enacted the law. And if it's a state official of the clerk taking it, um, then that might be something. And really, the way it's played out since the enactment of the statute puts a little more meat on the bone of Shelley versus Kramer than you might have thought at first, because the problem has turned out not to be a sea of lawsuits. There haven't been any. What happened was the providers all went, we're going to go broke if we have to litigate that, so we're just out of business. We're shutting down. So the problem really is the filing. The simple ability of the clerk to accept these lawsuits and put the litigation process in motion has turned out to really be where the meat is on the bone of this statute, and no one's litigated the thing yet, so we don't really know anything more about it. So there may be something to this that you might not have thought of otherwise. The case, everyone agrees Shelley is correctly decided, basically because it's such a pain in the rear to deal with real property records otherwise. but. People, it's cited an awful lot, distinguished an awful lot. To say that a clerk that really just takes things for a filing fee is a state actor is pretty broad. Um, and the court, the Supreme Court has not been comfortable building on Shelley into other relationships involving sort of ministerial type acts by state governments. So 
yeah, filing here has got some unique things going for it that's caused some unique problems, but the rule of Shelley, the rule in Shelley's case, a little property action there, yeah, yeah. Um, you say, huh, I heard some in the back there, is something that uh, uh, the courts, the conservative uh, judges that sort of dominate the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court, I think, are not very comfortable with. So, that, so that's the tension there. You have, on the one hand, is, it, is, is the state abusing its power? On the other hand, you have the question of, you know, is the, who is actually making the decisions? Yeah, the state's involved, but who's driving the train? Is it a private litigant or is it, is it a, some state decision maker? So I'm going to pause there before talking about equitable reservoirs, because I just want to say a lot of energy when I get into the reservoirs. Questions about anyway, ex parte young is fine too, uh, standing or any of the state action stuff that we just talked about. Sir? Well, that's that's the whole. Well, that actually is the uh, the, the Texas's side of the case. The Supreme Court is why are we here? But in the private case, uh, they can't be. The Eleventh Amendment bars that. But on the in the U.S. case, it's just an exception. That the, the U.S. can sue a state in federal court. It just can't. Uh, the Eleventh Amendment rule just has a carve out for that because of the nature of sovereign immunity. The U.S. The state is in some sense, not really, a subset of the United States. The 14th Amendment came after the 11th Amendment. There's just a pass. Now, the practical question that was raised in the, that litigation by the Texas Solicitor General is, why are we here? I get it. The other case is a mess. You've got the defense class action of all these judges in Texas and all these clerks. And, and I, I get that it's simpler to just sue us. What do we do? We're a state. We didn't do any of this. And you want, you're saying that we did, who? Who did it? We're not just some entity. If it's the legislature that did it, what do you want to do? Go undo it? If it's the clerks, how do we tell the clerks to go do it? If it's all suing, how are they, how are we responsible for them? Are we supposed to go and give notice to 10 million people that might give lawsuits? So, I, yeah, I know you want to make us into a one-stop shop. But you can't do that. Injunctions can't be against one person to make them regulate the affairs of millions of other people. That's just not fair as a matter of remedies law. Here, different U.S. case, but a very relevant question posed by Texas. There was a footnote, I didn't read the cases cited in there, where at least the SG's brief claimed that it has not been unheard of to issue a general injunction against, say, the chief executive of the state and said and say you've cluttered this up so much that we don't know who is to enforce it but you're in charge of the state so you figure yeah. it out yeah there's I didn't the, read the cases but yeah. they were in that like state. like many of those standing cases it's it's one of those things where there's a half dozen cases that have involved different situations over the years good luck there's not really a binding case on point texas's argument is what i just said that's Far from clear that necessarily carries the day, but it has some appeal. I mean, I'm in, I'm more of a commercial practice, and you, know, you have the, the cases that come up all the time of the guy that leaves and takes the secret stuff. Well, you can get an injunction against him, but what about the other guy, and what about the new employer? And yeah, I have a right to get my secret stuff back, but I can't just go and join everybody in town either if they're genuinely a stranger to the case and so on and so forth. So who is bound by an injunction? It's a serious matter. I mean, you're talking about being able to throw somebody in jail for violating court order. Well, you know, you need to be sure that they notice an opportunity to be heard. So the point is subject to a lot of debate without a lot of clear guidance. Is there another, ma'am, I'm sorry. So from a supremacy clause standpoint, isn't it problematic that Texas has attempted to abrogate Article III standing in diversity cases? Absolutely. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a serious question. Um, is it a question that's ripe for decision now? Well, that's the $64,000 question. Uh, is, I mean, the first thing, when, if and when one of these cases comes up in state court, um, the first point they're gonna make, assuming Roe is still the law of the land, will be uh, this, is, this violates the guarantees of Roe and Casey. And the second point is gonna be, who are you? Why are you talking? And make, these, make the standing arguments that we were just talking about. Here, as a, in this litigation is more about the, the, the act of just having the lawsuit rather than the, the point that the statute has written purports to allow a whole bunch of people to sue, which would then lead to a bunch of litigation about standing, which is the reason why it's a problem, is you have to spend all this money in court. But it's more about the fact of having to litigate the issue than who would actually win at the end of the day. All right, good stuff. We're, we're standing. Equitable, res equitable reservoir. You're, you're thinking, I can, you can see the turkey, you're going to drop equitable reservoir. Um, what time do we conclude, Corey? 35. Oh, tons of time. So, uh, equitable reservoir. This <clears throat> shouting fellow is Eugene Debs, um, <clears throat> a real firebrand activist in his day in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, spent a lot of it in jail for various reasons. Some of his activity today would be regarded as socialist, some uh, would be regarded as mainstream policy, but he was at a time when we were much more free market, Lochner ruled today, and all that sort of thing. And what he's shouting about there is uh, before he became a presidential, sort of a professional presidential candidate in the early 20th century, and spent a lot of time in jail for that too. Um, but before he became a professional presidential candidate, he was a labor union leader, a pretty effective one, at a time when unions were really without much power in the country. And remember the rail expansion? Everybody's worried about railroads. Minnesota's over there trying to shake down the country. Chicago, the hub of the National Rail Network, Debs leads a strike by the largest railroad union against any railroad that uses Pullman railroad cars. The Pullman factory was in uh, Chicago, it made a popular sort of rail car that was widely used. A lot of un what he saw to be unsafe, unfair conditions in the factory. The strike sort of kind of worked. A lot of unions were like, uh, I don't think so. But Debs persuaded his union to strike and it brought rail traffic to a stop in Chicago and thus the entire country. This is a problem. People start complaining. Uh, the Cleveland administration tells them go sue Debs for something. So they sued Debs for something and got an order saying, stop striking. And Debs said, to hell with you, I'm gonna keep right on striking. And he kept on striking. And the, I mean, the military got involved, posse commentators, I'm not sure how that worked, but the army took control of the train depots in Chicago, there was rioting all across the country, a lot of people died. Uh, it was a very, very difficult situation. Ultimately, uh, the strike was put down, Mr. Pullman went back to making cars, the railroad started running, and Debs ended up in jail. Uh, for contempt of court. Debs hired Clarence Darrow, who was kind of the David Boys of his time, and uh, took his case to the Supreme Court saying, what train just hit me? What just happened to me? This wasn't fair. As you may have gathered from Ex parte Young, the railroads had a lot of stroke in the late 19th century, so it didn't go well for Debs. But it is worth, uh, I just wanted to show my postman poster. Uh, but the, the point, that you, here's what the U.S.'s argument was in this case. They said that the, Article one of the Constitution gives the national legislature the express power to regulate interstate commerce and to deliver the mail. And we have all these trains that we now, is how we do interstate commerce in this country, and it's how we deliver the mail. 
and a strike that shuts down the trains prevents us from regulating interstate commerce and the mail can't be delivered. And so when we have a national express command from the Constitution that there should be commerce and there should be mail, and you are stopping that, we have an ability to go as a sovereign. We by the people deliver the mail. And we can't deliver the mail. We have the right to support and get appropriate relief to uh, get rid of that obstruction. The and this is the part where it gets interesting for the purposes of the present discussion about the abortion statute. There's a big lead up in the opinion that talks about the of the mail, which is quite, by the way, mail, letters, stamps. That was a big deal then, stamps. Have you seen a stamp lately? I haven't seen so the mail is so old school. But they they say they say, okay, mail is great, but we're not really just about mail here. And then they get all high horse. And they say any stuff earlier, this is the closest the U.S. Supreme Court's ever gotten to this. Any sovereign, any government, has the duty to discharge for the general welfare. We talked about the general welfare for a while. And you can do whatever you need to do to put Eugene Debs in jail and, uh, and do things for the general welfare. And that is sufficient by itself to give the United States standing in court. To be quaint, they call it a standing in court. Um, that's broad stuff. But the Supreme Court went way out of its way to say this. They could have stopped with the mail, and they could have stopped with interstate commerce. As we all know, the commerce power is vastly broad. Uh, but they didn't stop there. And they went further and said, if you're a sovereign, you have to have some ability to do things to make the welfare of the people. Um, and the argument was made that uh, Deb said, well, if I'm violating laws about the mail, prosecute me for that. Sue me. Prosecute me for violating the mail thing. Get a bunch of good Chicago rail workers on that jury. We'll all be acquitted. And you, you can, uh, we can argue about the constitutional stuff all day long in my criminal case. The court in Debs, like it did in Ex parte Young, says you shouldn't have to wait. The problem was not whether Debs was interfering with the mail. It was that there was no mail. The trains had shut down. And waiting to develop some case against him and prosecute him at a later date wasn't going to solve that problem. It may be that Mr. Debs ends up in jail. That was his campaign button for one of his many presidential campaigns. That's a catchy slogan, isn't it? Vote for me. I'm a good convict. Um, you know, whatever works. Um, so uh, that's the, uh, th that was their, the, the, the court rejected that argument. Now, some of that is driven by the fact that railroads had a lot of stroke. But the United States uh, has made a big deal out of this case in its briefing in front of the Supreme Court and said, and the, the points made by the court here are um, the subject of a lot of discussion, discussion in the oral argument. The, the question of express rights, express powers of government is central to this. Even though the Supreme Court said we're really waxing poetic about the general powers of government, <laughs> Uh, no one really wants to go there. And in fact, cases that have cited Debs, there haven't been a lot, there aren't a lot of riots shutting down the rail system, mercifully, uh, in this country, but they have been careful to tie it to something in Article I, Section 8 that's an express delegation of power. People are very uncomfortable with this. And the state of Texas has noticed that and said, we look at Article I, Section 8, and it doesn't say anything about medicine, and it sure doesn't say anything about abortion. Roe is a, it comes from a different place. We're not suggesting that it's not legitimate law. We will in two weeks. But for today, we're not arguing about that. But it's just different. That's something else 
other than something that the, the Constitution expressly tells the United States government to go uh, address. That's all pretty wispy stuff. There's not cases that guide you on any of that. It's basically people pointing at the Constitution and saying, I like that part. Um, but that's what we've got on this situation. And so the so question, threshold question is, are the rights guaranteed by Roe and Casey something similar to what was under discussion in Debs, or are they not? This part of it is very interesting, because that's the second time that the Supreme Court in a high-profile case said if you shouldn't have to wait. A current situation that's a big mess is something that courts are able to resolve. And yeah, there may be criminal consequences. Yeah, there could be civil suits and damages someday. But in Ex parte Young, they came up with the idea of suing Mr. Young. Here, they came up with an injunction against Debs shutting down the rail system. You don't have to wait if there's a crisis. And that observation is a central part of the United States position in its case, which is there's a problem here. There's this, the abortions are not being performed. The courts aren't able to act otherwise. You have that kind of power. And yeah, we don't have a case that says that, but you sort of just have to have it. It's by the nature of sovereignty, by the nature of being a court. And they cite this general language in depth. That's the second question. Is, is the later possibility of judicial review sufficient in this setting, or is the current situation analogous to the kind of crisis that we faced in Debs? Debs is not going to control this because it's on point, and the Supreme Court comes out with a case that says, we were just reading the holding in Debs, not be darned, it's on point. No. But they can say, if they were inclined to go with the United States side of it, here's a case that's 100 and something years old and is different, but the logic of it we like, and we're going to follow it and adapt it to this particular situation. So that's the question is, that's powerful stuff, right? Saying that the, a federal court can just go and join people for the public good. What? What? And Texas makes a big deal out of that in their briefing, which is, what? What does that mean? But the answer is, this kind of case comes along once a century, and yeah, you have to tie it to something. We have, there's a specific, in that case, it was a specific government power. Here, it's this wacky statute that's managed to get around all traditional concepts of judicial review, and there's an immediate problem. It's not the national economy, but it's a model for avoiding judicial review that has a real effect in Texas. And of course, if you heard the question between Justice Kavanaugh and the uh, state's the Solicitor General of Texas, you know, what happens when you turn this to gun control? No really good answer to that. You can anything. So that's the balance that we face in trying to apply debt. So those are the uh, four and a half uh, doctrines that Professor Moriarty has put into effect. Extraordinary draftsmanship. One sentence in this law, and you've seen it a couple of times now, implicates all these different doctrines. That's clever work. And whether or not you agree with it, whether or not you agree with the applications of these doctrines, or my name's other than you got it, that's some clever drafting. And it's forced the highest levels of the U.S. government sort of confront what is it that courts do in this society? What are the limits of federal courts compared to legislatures? And there are all these rules we developed that just aren't functioning here. One side of the question says. The other says, well, looks just fine to us. So how we resolve all that has implicate, even if the court doesn't address all these doctrines and their opinions on this issue, you know, where it goes with this obviously has consequences for these doctrines because it's indirectly saying things about them, kind of like cases like Debs and Ex parte Young did. I think we may be. We, we are. Time. All right. Thank you very much. If there are other questions, we can still ask. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.
In this episode of Coal Mind, I presented the second part of a recent talk that I gave at the Baylor Law School about the new Texas abortion statute, SB 8. The first part gave a general introduction to the law and then focused on sovereign immunity as defined by the Supreme Court case of Ex Parte Young. This episode looked at three other issues before the Supreme Court about SB 8, standing, state action, and the limits on a federal court's power to enjoin a law that it finds to be unconstitutional. For upcoming episodes, I expect to continue having interviews with other notable voices around Texas and the country to keep on discussing topics about the ongoing litigation involving SB 8, as well as new laws in Texas that take effect for the 2022 election governing the voting process that will be used statewide. Subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories. And if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.